Okay, everybody, welcome uh, to the show. Uh, this week, Peter and I are going to be discussing uh, perhaps the biggest film of 1977 uh, that wasn't Star Wars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, John Badham's uh, iconic Saturday Night Fever. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. So I have to just, as a disclaimer, I have to say at the beginning of this, this is one of my favorite films. Well, you, you, uh, have, you have Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, that's from something else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I always joke that, like, this is one of, like, the, you know, 50 movies in my top 10 kind of thing. Well, people don't know, but you have a poly, a white polyester <laughs> suit. I'm actually wearing it right now. <laughs> um so, you know, there's a lot to say about this. And I, I, you know, I, when I, when I mentioned to people, especially people who are a little younger than us, that I, I like this movie, you know, they literally know nothing about it. Young people have mostly not seen this movie and we're not that old, but, um, you know, people sort of know that it's a movie about disco dancing and, and whether they, they've seen it or not, people can imitate uh, Travolta's pose on the poster, you know, with one hand raised. Yeah, I guess and, that's like that. What that's what lived. Yeah, no, since right. Seventy-seven. Um, and the music. For, right. No, it's true. But for but I think the key the key to this movie and the reason that it's it's so iconic and is it, there's a lot to this movie. Like I think like when people actually sit down and watch this movie, especially if they have preconceived notions of it. This is a very, very different film than people are expecting, and it's a much more complicated and, quite frankly, dark film than, than most people remember. When people see it, they're often surprised at what actually takes place and where the movie actually goes. Well, I think they maybe expect them like a music video because they know, you know, the soundtrack by... Um the, the Gibbs Gibbs and others. Yeah, the Gibbs, um, the Gibb brothers and uh, right. It's mostly them was, was a massive hit and it's in the way that music frequently does it sort of, it's survived uh, the movie. So I think more people have heard uh, the soundtrack than have, than have seen the movie for sure. And it's sort of right. this, you know, the, there's a bunch of iconic um, songs that are sort of um, known as, as the, as the, the most iconic songs of the disco era. And the movie's been parodied a lot too, you know, right. from Airplane to I don't know the, the the Chili Peppers video. There's just a million and one parodies of this film, right? Because and, the and movie, again, people are often more familiar with the parodies than the actual film, right? So they know that the movie was some sort of significant of cultural event, but they don't probably haven't seen it. But yes, it's a dark movie, and it's mostly about um, coming of age and and. Bensonhurst among, you know, Bay Italian, Ridge, Bay, Bay, Ridge. Bay Ridge among, right. Bay Ridge among <laughs> Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, right. Not much different though. Uh, in, and, um, among, you know, ethnic Italian, uh, Italians right. in, in 1977. Right. Very, very ethnically Italian yep. uh, kids. So, uh, you want me to do the summary for this one? Yeah, you do the summary. So um, the movie follows our hero, Tony Monero, uh, a 19-year-old Italian kid who works at a paint store, and the job is supposed to be kind of awful. Uh, he works at a paint store. His family is sort of down on their luck. Uh, his father's out of work a long time in construction, and uh, there's a lot of tension at home. And 
Tony has a couple things going for him despite his troubles. And the big thing that's going for him is that he's a good-looking guy who can really dance. And sort of once a week, he is able to escape sort of the dreary, the dreary aspects of his life. And he goes to this disco named 2001 where he's kind of the star. Like he's sort of recognized as sort of like the most popular, most good-looking guy and best dancer. And one night a week – he gets a ton of attention and he goes there with his friends who are a fairly coarse lot uh, where he's often pursued by lots of women, most notably a young woman named Annette with whom he's he's danced before. And then one night at the um, at the nightclub, he spots a young woman named Stephanie. Uh, there's an upcoming dance competition at the at the club and he dumps Annette to work with Stephanie. He has a, a very fraught relationship with Stephanie. He makes it very, very clear he has romantic interest in her. He is rebuffed again and again and again. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, Annette's a romantic interest in him persists. His brother, who's a priest, who's really the only thing that his parents are proud of, leaves the priesthood. Uh, which causes a lot of discord in the family, but paradoxically helps Tony because it makes him feel like maybe he's not so terrible anymore if his brother's not so wonderful. Um, there's a sort of a sidetrack uh, about a sort of Italian slash Latino gang war that's a bit of a, a sidetrack. Um, at the end of the movie, um, Tony and uh, Stephanie dance in the dance contest and are clearly bested by a Puerto Rican couple, but the prize is given to uh, Tony and Stephanie. Tony is incredibly angry about this and recognizes that this is just sort of like a racially motivated fix. And he gives his trophy and the prize money that he's been working for the entire movie to the Puerto Rican couple, attempts to rape Stephanie in a car, doesn't work out. Um, and then sort of in a chaotic series of events, uh, Annette is gang raped by two members of Tony's crew his, his buddies yeah and then uh, another member of their crew bobby who has spent the entire movie uh, being torn apart by angst and isolation over the fact that he has gotten his girlfriend pregnant and she's not going to have an abortion because she's a religious catholic and he's being forced to marry her uh, he commits suicide um, and the movie ends with uh, tony uh essentially going to Stephanie's apartment after he is attempting to force his way onto her, begging forgiveness. And the movie ends with them agreeing that there's still something between them and they should at least try to be friends. Right. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot to this movie. I mean, that's kind of the point I was trying to make earlier is this is not just a movie about, you know, disco duck. Right. Well, there are sort of music video-esque, you know, dance sequences. There right. And there's a ton the of... Right, and they're they're incredibly impressive. I mean, you know, yeah, Travolta can dance. Yeah, no, I mean, I you know, I could practice for a year, and I couldn't do a tenth of what he does in this movie. Yeah, um, and you know, the dance scenes in this movie are long. Like, there's three or four very long sequences of the movie where Tony dances or other couples dance, and like, for example, the dance contest at the end is about a fifteen minute scene when you see multiple other couples competing against him. Right. And by um, the way, you know, when 
when Pulp Fiction came out, which was, yeah. you know, <laughs> 94, 93. It, right, almost, you know, 16, 17 years later, whatever it was. When uh, Travolta's career is at its nadir and he's been, you know, he's, right. he's box office poison. Right. And this movie catapulted him to, to, to a new level of, of stardom. Um, he basically to the highest level of stardom in, in the U.S. Uh, you know, when Tarantino puts him on the dance floor again in Pulp Fiction, at least for one scene. And you know, there, there's a lot of significance, I think, to that. <laughs> it is. And if well, you don't know this movie, you don't know. I remember when I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time, I saw it on a date. I remember, like, I said to the girl I was with this, this was all sort of setting up the scene at the uh, Jackrabbit Slim's restaurant. And I was like, oh, my God, Travolta's going to dance. And she was like, what? And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't go out again. Needless to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, there there's a lot of themes to this movie. And one of the big themes to this movie is there's sort of like a hierarchy of of people treating other people badly. And, you know, no one is immune from this. And, you know, it's funny because Tony actually at the very, very end of the movie in the fit of rage, Tony kind of comes out and says it. But, for example, you know, Tony talks down to a lot of the women at the club, most notably Annette, who he really treats very, very poorly when she very she's really attracted to him. She really wants to be with him. Um, he drops her in a very abrupt way as his dance partner. And he falls for Stephanie, who really spends most of the movie belittling him. Um, right. You know, she's supposed to be just a year older than him. You know, she has a very, very coarse and, you know, kind of awful accent, but she puts on a ton of airs because she's essentially a secretary at an office in midtown Manhattan where she gets to interact with some celebrities, you know, getting them coffee. But, you know, that's enough for her to sort of lord it over Tony. You know, when when Tony's in his house, his parents treat him poorly. There's a lot Um, of shouting. Yeah, a lot of shouting, uh, a lot of anger. Uh, it's it's at sort home. of like they're not far from the the village in Sicily or southern Italy or wherever they're <laughs> right. from. Basically. Everybody's emotions are right on the surface, right? You and know, the his, son who's going to be the priest and the whole you know right. they're really not far out of the sort of essentially multi century old uh, traditions, right? His job is fraught with tension. He's constantly fighting with his boss, you know, and then there's a great scene at the end of the movie or towards the end of the movie when when he helps Stephanie move out of uh, Brooklyn into an apartment in Manhattan. And then you find out that Stephanie is being dumped on by people at her job, you know, and that she she was essentially sleeping with somebody at her job so that she, you know, she would have someone to help her out and she wouldn't look like a fool. And he's very condescending to her. So there's this whole sort of cycle of everyone is sort of crapping on somebody else in this movie. Uh, And just when you think, you know, and and for example, Bobby, the, the boy who commits suicide, you know, he spends the entire movie, literally the entire movie. Begging Tony for help help and attention and someone to listen to him. And uh, Tony, who's ostensibly our hero, blows him off at every single opportunity. Right. Tony, who's sort of the only hope for redemption in the movie, um, has some minimal redemption. But but it's very flawed because he never even notices until the last second, really, that his buddy's in distress, even though the guy is constantly. Right. He tells him over and over. He's screaming it at them. Yeah. Um, But, uh, 
you know, there's a terrible, meaning great, but terrible scene where um, when the, he he introduces the gang to Stephanie and Bobby says to her, you know, he initially starts talking about a friend of his, but then he acknowledges that he's the one with the problem, you know, and he says, you know, what, what should his friend do if, uh, you know, if, if he gets the girl pregnant, you know, what would you do? And then she says, well, who would I have to marry? You know, if I was this girl and he says, it's me, you'd have to marry me. And Stephanie says, I'd get an abortion. Right. <laughs> she says it right to his face. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, but it's just it's again, it's this sort of cycle of everybody sort of crapping on everybody. Yeah, it's almost like it would serve well as a, a sort of uh, Soviet propaganda film in some ways about how the uh, American social system, uh, you know, capitalism is, is disastrous. Because there are all these social strata of inequality and people basically pee down on the guy on the chain, right, you know, right below him on the stratum, right right. below them. You kiss up and you kick down. Yes. So it's Um, pretty uh, rough. You can kind of like, like the thumbnail sketch of this movie is really that, you know, Tony discovers that he's an asshole and he discovers that all of his friends are assholes and the movie like essentially like the the emotional climax of the film is that tony realizes he doesn't have to be such an asshole and like literally that's that's the that's the resolution of the story is tony just has an inkling of maybe he can live his life differently and he doesn't have to do all these things he's done all these years yeah i mean he it's 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 a coming of age to story it's a coming of age story in, in a a very it's an unpleasant coming of age story, essentially. I mean, he grows up to a certain extent and he, uh, right. He realizes that, and he maybe realizes that his earlier motivations were not everything and that there's more to life, um, than Saturday night fever. And, you know, I think, you know, before we go any further, and I wanted to say this earlier that what we're talking about here today is the R rated version. So there's two versions of this film. There's actually three, but the, the R-rated version is the version that's shown in the theater, and that's what we're talking about today, which is also famous because of the incredibly coarse language that they use. I mean, they use um, an incredible amount of profanity. Uh, they use all sorts of racist and homophobic slurs, and it's just supposed to be how they talk. Like, right. you know, nobody reacts in horror or recoils when they talk this way because everyone is talking this way. Right, and most of the actors that that they hired are are relatively local. Um, so they are pretty true to the speech idioms and, uh, you know, they try to keep it that way. Um, you know, Travolta's from right across the Hudson river, but, uh, not, not far from there. And yeah, uh, that, there's a PG version where, uh, almost all of the sex and all of the profanity is removed, uh, which is, which is honestly unwatchable. Right, and then there's and an then, animated version that Disney put out <laughs> with a bunch of merchandising. There's actually the, there's a version when it was shown on television years later. There was a third version that was essentially the PG version with a bunch of deleted scenes put back in. So it's sort of like a weird version of the film. Um, you know, Travolta's um, you know he's playing a 19 year old. Right. In this. I don't know how old Travolta was. Let's see. Travolta's born in 54. So he's 22 when they yeah, make this. So pretty off. close. Um, and, you know, Karen Lynn Gorney, who plays Stephanie, she's significantly older. I mean, she says in the film, 
that she's 20 and she's kind of like making a joke out of it when she says it. And it's implied that she's a little older than Tony. She's a decade older than him. Right. Uh, in real life. And, I, and again, as I say, as somebody who really, really, really likes this film, I think one of the few things about it that are, are that are tough for me is that it's a little bit hard to believe that that Tony, who is literally having women hurl themselves at him. Mm -hmm is going to fall for Stephanie who's clearly older and rebuffs him time and time again. Like in real life, he probably would have um, whatever moved on. Like it's a, that's, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I don't know. You know, he's interested in the one that won't, that, that he has to work for in a way that's, you know, he's reaching. Right. But he's 19. Yeah. But he, but he, <laughs> well, look, he sees, he, he's trying to get out in a way, right. He's trying to, his way, he doesn't realize it yet, but his way of shining is, is dancing. And he, she's really, she's the only, the first really good dancer that he's seen. So she's very appealing to him. Well, right. And I think, you know, he, he recognizes that she's better than Annette. Oh yeah. Um, so, so to flip it over and don't get me wrong, I think Gorney does a great job, but their relationship's a little bit of a, a stretch for me. I think Donna Pescow, who plays Annette, she steals almost every scene in the movie because with the exception of Bobby who commits suicide, she's actually the most tragic figure in the whole thing. Yeah. Because she spends the entire movie failing to get Tony's attention and the movie culminates in her gang rape. Yeah. Essentially. Um, I mean, she does a very, very good job playing a tough part. Um, you know, She's, you know, she just doesn't catch a break the whole movie. Like everything goes against her. You know, they, they thought that she was too pretty. Have you heard this story? Like yeah, she tells, I've saw. seen her tell this story that they, they almost didn't hire her because they thought she was too good looking. So they, she gained a ton of weight. She gained like 30, 40 pounds to play Annette. Right. And she had apparently worked very hard in real life to get rid of her Brooklyn accent. Right. And then they basically said, like, you, you have to sound like one of them. So she moved back in with her parents and started talking the way she did as a kid. I imagine it wasn't that hard to do. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, um, go ahead. You know, Travolta, see, Travolta at this point was a TV star because right, he was Vinnie Barbarino. Right. On uh, on Welcome Back, Cotter, which was pretty, I think it was a fairly popular TV show from mid to late 70s. And um, he was one of the major kind of, you know, characters on that on that show. So he was a more or less a TV star at the time. But he this movie, he became a movie star and he really was terrific in this role besides the dancing uh, he's a no, great he's, actor. He's, I think he's actually nominated for best actor yeah, in the he's film. He's terrific. I think yeah. in real life he's nominated for best actor. Yeah, he doesn't win, but he's nominated for best. And, he, you know, he, it's a complex role because at the beginning of the movie, you kind of think he has everything. You know, yeah. he's good looking and he's popular he's and he's confident. got all these women. Yeah. And then you realize, like, it's all a house of cards. And you literally, the movie is you watching the house of cards collapse. Right. And he realizes it. But he re he he realizes that it's nothing. And when, you know, when they were making the movie, they had a lot, you know, the whole thing is filmed in three months, basically in Brooklyn and Manhattan and environs. And they had a ton of trouble making it because there were crowds sort of mobbing the set just to watch him. So they had a lot of troubles filming scenes with him 
outdoors. So they sometimes they would have to have something else going on to distract the sort of gawker so that they could get the scene going on sort of around the corner when they weren't looking. Hmm. Um, Travolta, you know, when you read interviews with Travolta about this, you know, this, he was very, uh, he was under a ton of stress when they made this. He was, he was dating Diana Highland, who he had been in the boy in the plastic bubble with. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, and you know, she's 20 years his senior and, uh, I think she's in LA and while they're making this, she dies of metastatic breast cancer. Hmm. So like in the middle of the movie, he has to run to her bedside and be there when she dies. And then when they filmed his, some of his big dance scenes, especially the, the you should be dancing number, they edited it in a way that it was all close-ups and they didn't really show him doing everything. And he thought that people would think it wasn't him. And uh, the director said, well, look, that's the edit. That's how we're doing it. And he, he walked off the film. He quit in the middle. And he said, I can't be in this movie. Like, it's going to make me look terrible. So they basically had to sort of talk him down and agree that they would re-edit that whole scene the way he wanted. And honestly, Travolta was right. Mm-hmm. You know um, you know that it's all based on a lie. You know that, the whole story about that, this movie? Yeah, they, they got, there was the journalist that wrote this this presumed this supposed article in like New, New York, York magazine. magazine. He made up the character, you know, this kind of, a, he, yeah, you know, he made up basically everything. Yeah. So um, it's supposed to be a character that that's similar to Tony who, who, who only lives for, for going out dancing at a disco on Saturday night, but he kind of was basing it on somebody in his past who, you know, was, was a little like that, but he made it up. Yeah, and I think at the t- I think he didn't admit for many many years. No, I don't that, think anybody that he knew made the whole thing up. Yeah, it's amazing, you know. Jeez, um, did you spot Fran Drescher? There's a very very young Fran Drescher in this. Yeah, movie. she's basically like an extra, more or less. She's an extra, but she has a great scene where she's dancing with Tony, and they have this sort of like witty repartee where. She's saying how good she is in bed, and he's basically saying, you're probably a lousy lay. And it's sort of funny, and they go back and forth. And at the end, she goes, well, how come they all send me flowers the next day? And he goes, maybe they thought you were dead. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and again, it's just sort of to sort of set the stage that he has all these women, you know, all over him. And he's, he, you know, he dumps all over them. Um, What was I going to say? So the... The end of the movie, like the last half hour, uh, you know, it's really like the whole thing accelerates. And in the last half hour, you have the dance contest, you know, where he realizes the thing is rigged. And even though it's rigged in his favor, he, you know, he views it as just another form of people crapping on other people, like they're crapping on the, the Puerto Ricans who win. Right. You have um, his attempted rape of Stephanie, the actual rape of Annette and Bobby's suicide all in about the span of 30 minutes. Yeah. Like the whole thing just sort of, you know, no disrespect to Bobby, but the whole thing just kind of goes off the cliff. And, you know, it's, it's funny because it starts off one way and it finishes in such another place. And then the sort of the denouement is Tony takes a long subway ride to New York and it's filmed sort of at the, the peak of New York at its worst. Uh, like, you know, when, when like the graffiti and the crime and the filth are sort of at their, their nadir. 
um, or I guess there's zenith, depending on how you look at it. Um, and like this, the city just looks really, really rough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's a brief scene at Stephanie's apartment and then the movie ends fairly abruptly, you know, like, yeah. you know, with just with the, with the promise that he's going to try to be better and he's going to move out of Brooklyn and, and see what he can accomplish with his life. Right. There's just the suggestion. I mean, you, you get the idea that he has achieved some degree of awareness of things. Uh, there's some change, but, um, it's it's not exactly a, a happy happy ending. No, say. no, and he you know he's all he's all banged up for the last half of the movie from the gang fight, and um, yeah, he comes away empty-handed in terms of tangible assets, but he's made a huge leap mentally, you know. And he's sort of, you know, and it's funny because in the final scene with Stephanie, he, you know, she kind of pokes a hole in him, like he's like, I'm gonna move to Manhattan and get a job, and. You know, I can find new people to be with. And then she's, you know, she kind of like pokes a hole in it. She's like, well, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I'll work in an office like you. And she goes, I can type. And then there's sort of a pause and it's implied he, he has no skills. You know, he he's 19 years old and he works at a paint store. Right. Um, so it's sort of left unclear what he's actually going to do. Um, it's astonishing that this film which is so good on every level is followed by perhaps the worst sequel in the English language. (laughs) I mean, have you seen staying alive? Uh, I saw it a hundred years ago. And by the way, you know, who directed it? I know, I know (laughs) Stallone himself, Rambo, the man. Um, It's, it's, unfathomably bad yeah like it's it's just there's not a good moment in it it's bad from start to finish and like literally all of the charm and the grit and the roughness you know and the insight that this movie has is completely absent in the sequel yep and it costs more money and made a lot less yeah, although it didn't make money. This thing was a monster. This thing grossed over $200 million on a little more than a $3 million budget. And the soundtrack sold 40 million copies. Yeah, just think about that in the age of streaming. We're talking about right. 40 million people went out and bought an LP. I, 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 remember the L, I remember my parents had the LP and it was two records. Like it was right. kind of full, unfolded it, a, it open. Yeah, it, was it was two vinyl albums. Yeah. Um, you know, I made I made a comment earlier, sort of jokingly, about the song "Disco Duck," which is it's very very briefly played in one of the scenes at the dance studio. And there's a funny footnote about that song. It's, it's sort of famous for being one of the worst disco songs ever recorded, and that's saying <laughs> something. Um, and uh, Rick Dees was the guy who wrote it, and they offered him. They said, "Hey." You know, since the song's in the movie, can we put it on the soundtrack? And the song had already been released as a single and had some success. And he said no, because he was afraid that it would hurt sales of the single. And it wasn't on the soundtrack, which went on to sell 40 million copies. Yeah. So, Oops. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, did you spot uh, Travolta's mother and sister in the movie? No, I didn't uh, this time. But His uh... sister... Uh, Anne is the pizza girl who, who in the opening scene gives him the two slices of pizza while he's doing mm. his iconic walk. 
and um, the the paint store customer that he's essentially scamming. Like the opening scene is him That's walking back with the paint a can, sorry, the, the can of paint to uh, you know that he got from the other paint store. Right. The the woman that he's ripping off is Helen Travolta, his mom. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I I really 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 like this movie like I, I i make a point of not watching it too much because i don't want to you know burn out on it mm-hmm. but uh you know every every two or three years i'll dust this one off and and watch this do you know who the original director was by the way it was supposed to be avildsen who made rocky mm-hmm. and he didn't he didn't really he didn't really get it like uh stigwood uh, the producer just felt like he didn't really understand the story and he kept wanting to go in directions that they didn't want to go in and they fired him. They fired him halfway through the movie or well, I guess through, through some part. I don't know how far along, probably pre-production. And then they got John Badham, who, by the way, directed Blue Thunder. Right. And also War Games, which I know we have to mention like, Blue Thunder as much as humanly possible. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's how many degrees of separation from Blue Thunder. But uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, he actually directed Blue Thunder and War Games, I think, back to back. And those are pretty polar opposite because War Games is like one of the original hacker movies. That's really good. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, Blue War Thunder. Games, War Games holds up actually pretty well. Yeah, we should podcast on that one. I yeah, wonder if anybody's I mean, seen it. You know, War Games informed a whole generation of young kids on like, ooh, stuff they could do with computers, you know? Yeah. That wasn't such a great, that you know, that maybe wasn't so nice or so so clean, but was really cool and exciting. Um, I don't know. Like this one for me, you know, I, I like it for its complexity and for, its, for the way that it's layered and the way that. You know, everything you think in the first half hour gets sort of slowly peeled away. And at the end, you're left with this sort of dark core. You know, like like at the nightclub after after he's lost the competition and, you know, been rejected the final time by Stephanie. You know, when it's when it's apparent that his two friends, Double J and Bobby C, are going to rape uh, Annette. You know, he makes a kind of a half-hearted attempt to intervene, and they point out rightly, like, "Look, you've made it clear mm-hmm. you don't care about this girl. Don't butt in now." And he's kind of powerless. Like he's warned Annette, and he's you know, like he's 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 done what he can. And then when the actual rape happens, you know, he's two feet away in the yeah. front seat of the car, and he does nothing. I mean, that's a pretty dark moment. You you actually feel that I think more than Bobby's death because Bobby's death is more telegraphed, whereas you don't really see that Annette's going this way. And I think the event that pushes Annette over the cliff is watching Tony compete yeah. in the dance contest with Stephanie. You know, like they show her sort of watching, sort of looking stricken, and her her answer is to basically take a bunch of drugs. You don't know what it is, but I forget if it's Bobby or Double J, but one of them. Uh, or Joey, sorry, or Double J, but one of them gives her gives her a bunch of pills, and they say, "Hey, you've had a lot," and she wants more. So she's basically sort of trying to sort of get high yeah. to, to sort of yeah, hide it's, from it's, the pain. It, it gets more and more brutal, kind of as the movie goes on. It starts out almost chipper, except for his home life, maybe, but it kind of starts off showing the high points of his life, and then it it uh, 
you it you peel away these sort of layers to reveal unpleasantness. And you know it's funny because even in the beginning of the film, his home life is even though it's yes. it's shit, it's played for laughs. Like there's that scene where they're fighting at yeah. the table and they're like throwing food at each other. And, you know, the father hits his hair. Like that's the one time it's kind of played for laughs, and the rest of the time his home life is 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 you know shown to be pretty grim. And it sort of culminates in that scene where he he sort of angrily yells at his mother that she has, you know, <laughs> nothing but shit children. Right. Right, which is her big fear, right? And he comes out and says it. And then as soon as he says it, he realizes he's, he's gone over the line and he apologizes to her. But, you know, she's so disappointed with the fact Leaves. that, you yeah. know, Travolta's brother has left the priesthood. Yeah. Um, you know, the Bee Gees were dead in the water, by the way, like, when this came out, like their, their career hmm. was basically over, uh, you know, they were really a, a big band in the sixties. And then by the, you know, by the late seventies, you know, they were essentially dead and they were, you know, touring very out of the way countries that were the only place that they were sort of, you know, still getting any airplay. And then they were, they, you know, they sort of went the disco direction, um, and this movie really catapulted them to a level of success that they had never, yeah. ever seen before. But they, you know, people think that they were superstars all the time, but that's not true. They were, they were basically, you know, they were has-beens, which is an interesting sort of angle on this, just to think how they went from, you know, nothing to the biggest soundtrack in the history of music right. for, you know, 30, 40 years. And I think I think they have five songs in the soundtrack, but their songs are sort of the core of the soundtrack that set the tone uh, for for the, the whole two record set. I think only one BG um, is only, left. Only Are any one of them of, left? I think only uh, one of them died young. Of, the other ones, I think, were um, a little older. Barry's al the only one Barry alive. Barry Gibb I think. is alive. Maurice and died. Maurice died young. He's the one Robin that died is young. Dead. Yeah, Morris is dead. Maurice died in, yeah, in, in yeah. 53. Crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because just sort of in preparation for the podcast, I tried watching a few minutes of uh, Staying Alive. And I mean, no, that's oh dedication. my God. I Well, I, I watched a few scenes and it was all that I could do. But, you know, it's funny is like they have no one to blame but themselves for staying alive. Like apparently, you know, Travolta had a huge amount of input on the <laughs> script. They made it PG, you know, like they did. They just uh, they, like, imagine a movie where every single possible choice was wrong. And, and then you end up with staying alive. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of like Star Trek five, you know, like like like. Among Star Trek fans, people often pretend that Star Trek V <laughs> just didn't happen. Like, it's never discussed. You know, like, it violates Star Trek canon in so many ways. Like, fandom has collectively decided that the best answer mm -hmm. is just to pretend it never happened. And that's kind of how I feel about staying alive. Like, I kind of feel like the movie ends and we never see Tony again and we never know what happens to him. Even though we, we see it and we know, it's better off to just pretend that the end of Saturday Night Fever is the end yeah. of Tony's story. I'm trying to think of other examples where the sequel was so much worse 
than the first movie. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, what else rises to that um, level? Well, oh, you mean the second movie? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, where is the sequel so much Rambo. worse? <laughs> uh, well, you know what's interesting about Rambo? So we can have a brief comment about Rambo because that was our last podcast. But, like, it's it's more it's, – it's not like – such a precipice with the Rambo movies. Like I, I've watched Rambo two and three since we last spoke, and it's just sort of like a stepwise drop. It's like a pretty linear drop off. Uh, whereas, it, you know, with this, it's like a sheer cliff. You know, it, it's like it's like hmm. stepping off the edge of the Grand Canyon. Like you know, it's really a bad sequel to a movie we've talked about on the podcast. Oh God, does that the even fly count? Two. Well, it does because it's a great first movie. With a I guess these are sequels you don't even terrible remember. Sequel, you know, like I don't even remember they existed. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of others. The Fly kind of leaps out to me, and I guess maybe Speed <laughs> oh, Two. Oh, right? No, I'm being serious. Like I love Speed. Speed's a good movie. How Speed about Blade Two, Runner, is, and they made it 30 years ooh, later. Like, yeah. You know, that's funny because the second Blade Runner is it's so expensively made, like just the sort of like the slick and poshness of it kind of saves it from dropping that down so far. You know, I'm trying to think if there's any other movies with really, really like just dramatic sequels are usually worse. So for me, it's easy to remember the ones where the second one's better because they're uncommon, you know, like Empire Strikes Back and. And uh, like, Star Trek Two, Terminator Two, and uh, um, yeah, I don't know, the just, Road I'm Warrior. Just thinking, I guess Grease Two, you know, which Travolta Travolta wisely opted out of Grease Two. Um, Grease Two is pretty hmm. darn terrible. These are all things that I don't even remember exist. You know? I mean, I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever seen Grease Two since nineteen. 19- you know, 83 or whatever. Since whenever it came out, you know, yeah, it probably seemed like a good idea at the time. I'm sure you know? they, made they a were couple like, bucks. hey, we'll make some money off of this. Oh, I'm sure they made a ton of money because they, they cast it with nobody from the first movie. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and they just, they made it for nothing to capitalize on the popularity. But again, to go back to, to, uh, to Saturday Night Fever, like I think, honestly, Staying Alive may top them all. Like it may be the like the worst sequel ever. Dun dun dun, mm. the worst sequel ever. Um. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, I think to our listeners, if you have not seen this film in a long time, like we are literally just scratching the surface. This is a two-hour movie with a lot of stuff in it. Like, if you have not, if you are a film, you know aficionado and you take film seriously like there is a reason why 40 years later people still talk about this movie and this movie had a huge cultural impact that lasted for years so if you haven't seen this movie i would i would definitely go out of your way to make sure you see this one um i think i think all the principles in this movie are still alive Right. Clearly, Travolta's alive. Donna Pescow's alive. Um, she, by the way, has a very brief cameo in the final episode of this of The Sopranos. 
Um, Karen Lynn Gorney is still alive. I think actually every, every all the all those sort of principals in this movie are still alive forty years mm-hmm. later, including Fran Drescher. All right. Um, I don't know. Any other thoughts on uh, the movie or its sequel? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's a. I agree. I think it's certainly worth seeing. I, there's more to it than the picture with the white polyester suit and the soundtrack. The movie is is that's the tip of the iceberg. So I, it's certainly worth seeing. Yeah, I I think so too. There's uh, there's just there's just a lot of good stuff in it. All right, should we wrap there? Yep. See you All next right. time. Uh, next time, staying alive. <laughs> All right, thanks everybody. See you.